I'm Rob and welcome to the Uncut Network. Every month we rotate between directors, actors and super specific genres. We cover everything from exploitation to things your parents will absolutely approve of, relative unknowns to household names and everything in between. The Uncut Network is a movie podcast of all the niches and to cover all of those things and more, I'm joined by Graham. Hello there. Hello, Rob. And uh, Rob, and you're Rob. It's been a long day. No, and, that's you. And, Who's on and, first? And Robin, it's been a long day. Hello, uh, hello. Uh, yes, I'm back. Uh, t- a manic twosome. It's when these two are together, it's just kind of anarchy. I, I did wonder. We were going to have some other people on, and they all dropped out. And I'm now starting to wonder why that was. But every time this happens. Every time, there's always other people meant to be on, and they all drop out, and it's just us. <laughs> it's just you two. It's like, oh, God, Lento again. <laughs> people, though, they've been warned. Yeah. Ah, but it, it's great. It's great. The less I have to talk, the better the podcast. And frankly, I say hello to you two, and then an hour later, it's <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> but how are you both doing, anyway? How are you both doing? I'm good. I think we're both busy on I'm a lot very of filming busy. stuff. Yeah. yeah. Currently, at the time of recording, actively prepping for a film shoot the next day at 9.30 in the morning. Uh, so, oh, good luck for it. I hope it goes well. Uh, I hope so too. Uh, but yeah, should be good. Should be good. Dealing with six people other than me, it's gonna be good. <laughs> Yeah, this is what boom pulls the father, not just for sort of recording audio, the sort of respect my authoritar sticks yeah. as well. <laughs> the, the, the explicit purpose is so you can stick them in the frame when the director pisses you off, so that people will notice, <laughs> oh, what's that in the film? <laughs> yes. Um, so this is the second of the first ever genres on Cut Month. Uh, last time we did a horrible bit of nostalgia for myself and Andy <laughs> and Kat. It was 1990 sort of post scream boom slashes. Yeah. Um, we did. Oh, here's the question, isn't it? Testing my memory. I know what you did last summer. Um, Urban Legends and Idle Hands. Um, and actually, actually, you did Urban Legend, not Urban Legends Final Cut from Hey, hey, hey. Concentrate, oh, this guy. guy literally thought you were him a second ago. <laughs> I think that's very good. <laughs> Look, uh, it's true. The name's a But yeah, I mean, just to recap that, I mean, Urban Legend does not hold up particularly well, but the other two, I think, yeah, they're all right. Pretty good. Okay. It's got okay. Brad Dorif, though. For one scene, Brad Dorif. Yeah, wasted in in one scene. Deserve more. Deserve more. Yeah. He always deserves more. <laughs> yeah. But in this one, it's another 90s episode, um, and possibly the board, broadest, I should say, uh, genre classification that's ever going to be or ever going to happen, because we are talking about 90s teen movies, and as far as memory recalls, everything in the 90s was a teen movie. So Yeah, it, it did occur to me when you were listing those slasher movies that if I'm not mistaken, every single one of them could also have qualified for this show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. basically. I think the only movies from the 90s that weren't for teenagers were Sansa the Lambs and Seven, everything else. Like was the for Shawshank Redemption? 
I'm yeah, pretty certain the Shawshank but, Redemption wasn't it, it, about teenagers. It's just a really tough high school. It's okay. really, really <laughs> tough. I mean, earlier today I watched a film, a great film called Becky, uh, which features Kevin James as a neo-Nazi. Uh, and mm. it's it's a great kind of hor- horrifying, but really thrilling kind of teenage girl beats the fuck out of Nazis movie. It's very, very satisfying and grisly and weird. Okay. Uh, but... Uh, notably, the opening sequence of that uh, is uh, a high school uh, being intercut perfectly with the prison system, uh, and it's just yeah. I'm, <laughs> maybe the Shawshank Redemption is just a really rough high school. Maybe. Well, there was that meme a while ago, wasn't there? How uh, I can't remember who it was now. Um, terrible for names tonight. He's in the jerk. He's in turns planes and automobiles. Steve he's Martin. Steve Martin. Steve Martin in a movie he was 47 and 47 in 1995 looks like about 65 in 2023 <laughs> yes yeah, so, that's so true <laughs> maybe maybe um but in this one we we picked three movies three very very different movies indeed um, first was uh where have we 1994's heavenly creatures then 1995's clueless Mm-hmm. And then we end on the faculty from 1998. Good morning, Mr. Stewart. Sit. Miss Waller, class, this is Juliet Hume. Juliet is joining us from St. Margaret. And prior to that, she spent some time at Queenswood in the Hawke's Bay. I am actually from England, Miss Stewart. Of course. Juliet's father is Dr. Hume, rector of Canterbury College. Juliet has travelled all over the world. I'm sure she's very eager to share her impressions of exotic lands across the seas with the girls of 3A. Hmm. Well, I'll leave you to it, Miss Waller. Juliet? You can sit over here, Juliet. We use French names in this class. You can choose your own. Now, irregular verbs in the presence of junctive. Je doute, qu'il vienne. Excuse me, Miss Waller, you've made a mistake. Je doute qu'il vienne is in fact the spoken subjunctive. It is customary to stand when addressing a teacher, Antoinette. You should have written va. Oh. I must have copied it incorrectly from my notes. You don't need to apologize, Miss Waller. I found it frightfully difficult myself until I got the hang of it. Thank you, Juliet. Open your textbook to page 17. We do it chronologically, so... Um, yeah. Starting with Heavenly Creatures. Who what wants a film to, to open on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who wants uh, when... to synopsize? I mean, this is a hard movie to synopsize because you could basically just say two girls become friends and that would suffice. But Well, first of all, <laughs> I'm going to say when you, Graham, suggested a potential lineup of free movies, the first things you suggested were Clueless, The Faculty, and Heavenly Creatures. And I laughed my ass off when I read, read that you'd written Heavenly Creatures, having not at the time seen it, because I'm just like, oh, that's an 
evil choice. <laughs> I, it's, I'm just like, how many people on this podcast are going to know what they're in for? And I, I mentioned this 90s. to a friend, and they've just said, yeah, uh, it's a downer. And yeah, <laughs> it is a downer. Uh, and it's interesting. It's a film by uh, Peter Jackson uh, starring a <laughs> a pre-Titanic uh, Kate Winslet. Kate Winslet. And introducing Kate Winslet. That, that's, not, that's, not, that's, not, that's not Kate Winslet. Why is Kate Winslet face on that 15-year-old? That's clearly a deep face. <laughs> She's on yes. a boat, though. She's on a boat in one of the scenes. That says, <laughs> at the beginning, it says, for Jim. I'm assuming that's James Cameron. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> but yes, Heavenly Creatures is the story of kind of two outcast schoolgirls, kind of all-girls Catholic school, uh, who return home for the summer, and they both bonded over their love of this shared fantasy world, which they've dreamt up, which is something oddly relatable to me uh, in regards to my own teenage years. Uh, but it's clear that they're both struggling with their own issues, uh, not just the class divide and the big colonial undertones of some of the stuff going on, uh, but also they both, earlier in life, had extended stays in hospital, which have left them with great trauma, and they bond more and more and more until there's, it's an all-consuming, more than friendship, it goes outright into basically a romantic relationship, mm. and bad things happen. I'm kind of romantic. It's more psychosexual than romantic. Oh, but, <laughs> oh, but, it, but it's, it's, it's a quote for film. I'm using the film's definition of romantic. Uh, Which okay. is and yeah, fair. It's a quote of a film, but all of the best people have lung diseases and uh, leg problems. It's dreadfully romantic. Yes. Yeah. But in, in sort of broader terms, yeah, it's, it's psychosexual. It's, mm, this is and, a weird relationship that these two girls have. Yeah. But, Graham, you suggested it, so what are your feelings on Heavenly Creatures? Well, I've uh, I, I've got a very small amount of notes to this because I think as a young, closeted teenager, I might have memorised every single frame of this movie. Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it's my favourite Peter Jackson film, I will say. I think it's... Uh, it is fascinating watching it back in retrospect and realising that so many of the techniques that he would go on to use in his Tolkien adaptations were piloted in this very small, very insular, very audience-unfriendly movie. I think the, the miracle of it is that, for all it is about this really unhealthy, obsessive relationship, you never feel on the outside of it. There's never really a point where you watch it and you think, well, wh why are they hanging out with each other? It's sort of, Jackson had just made brain dead at this point, which also paints a very different film, but, <laughs> but also yes. paints like mid-20th century New Zealand as this really stifling, repressive place. And I think without having to push the definition or without having to sort of stand on a soapbox about it, it does effectively make the case that uh, Juliet Parker and Pauline, is it? No, Juliet Hume and Pauline Park. Oh, I can't remember which way their surnames go. Whatever way it is. Yeah. Juliet and Pauline, their their relationship is like a sort of a, a pressurised response to the madness and the repressiveness of the world around them. 
just one thing that particularly stood out about the repression is sort of the relationship with things that are sort of not normal. It's like the way the mm. therapist says, he goes, homosexual. Homosexual. Tight close up on his oh, yeah. lips. Homo. Yeah. So in that scene, Peter Jackson invented ASMR. So there's <laughs> <laughs> that. There's other bits as well. I um, feel the need to mention right off the bat earlier, early on, and partially what makes this film so depressing is the fact that uh, Juliet and Paula were real people. <laughs> yes, we haven't mentioned that, but this yeah. is very closely based on a true story, and every time it goes into those very florid, sort of poetic journal entries that are read out on the voiceover. That's real stuff. That's actual yeah. quotes from their diaries. Yeah, it's, it's just got this on the lineup. We've got kind of ah, two quirky 90s teen movies. Ah, and then we've got this absolutely deeply affecting uh, yeah. kind of true, true crime drama about two girls absolutely losing it. And it's... It's obsessive but, relationship, yeah. Indeed, yeah. it's... I mean, it starts off rather innocently. Yeah. It starts off like the sort of friendship that anybody you'd wish to have, like that person at school who just gets the same sort of things that they do. I can't remember yes. the name of the, the opera singer, but there's an opera singer that the both... Mario Lanza. Yes. They're yeah. both in love um, with musically and sort of as, as a person. Uh, and they also bond over their <laughs> absolute hatred and terror of Orson Welles, which is <laughs> one of the most bizarre elements <laughs> of the film and leads to some... Look, I know this happens whenever I'm on an episode, but I'm going to start laughing about the Orson Welles sex hallucination. <laughs> <laughs> there is an Orson Welles jump scare in a sex scene of the film. Yes, there absolutely is. Yeah. So, so there's that. There's, <laughs> there's, that. A, shared, there's a shared fantasy uh, reality that they're making. Like, uh, there's a particularly good point within that. I mean, there's all, there's all sorts of sort of fantasy trimmings, but there's one point that particularly stuck on for me. It's when they got a report to write about uh, the monarchy, mm. and the teacher's very annoyed about the fact that they're writing something uh, about a fictional royal family that they're made of. Like, yeah, which is full of like uh, really gory gothic details and inappropriate. Uh, as somebody who hates who hates the royal family and is very <laughs> anti-monarchist, that just was like, yeah, good on you. <laughs> a big deal of the film is that the Hume family uh, has come to New Zealand in the 1950s from England, mm. and it's notable that they're a rich, well-off family, uh, whereas uh, the Parker family uh, were born in New Zealand and are kind of, they have less money, they have a fairly standard working class home, they're struggling, it's... They have to take in a lodger, which is another sort of oh, thing yeah. that Pauline takes as like a personal insult against her. Mm. There's, there's definite, there's a definite vibe of the colonial to it. Uh, yeah. From the way oh. that the teachers treat Juliet better, it's clear that the film is kind of commenting on the fact that partially this repressed state of being has come from the British colonisation of New Zealand. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's... A, it's a fascinating thing about sort of, uh, I don't know if it, yeah, it was also around this time, there was a 1989 movie from Australia called Celia, which has sort of very similar vibes to yeah. this. Yes. Um, 
And they both sort of feel like, in that case, that's it, and uh, Canberra on Thames, and this is, you know, Kingston yeah. upon Wellington. They both feel like they're sort of a very posh little enclave of England. I think it, it's partly because the class system is one of the main sort of things we exported out to our former colonies. Oh, yeah. There is that wonderful scene where Juliet comes round to Pauline's house and talks to her parents, and Juliet gets on fabulously with Pauline's parents at first because she's from a class who were trained to be polite to people they consider ultimately inferior, whereas Pauline's just sat there absolutely stewing at how much her parents are showing her up just by being from the class that they're obviously from in front of her new posh friend. It's, it's, it's very surreal as well. I mean, I think we talked about this before, Graham, um, with another, I think it was a 50s British movie, how you have these weird things that sort of started in the 50s, but you saw them in your childhood sort oh, of yes, through yeah. the years. And it happens here too, that sort mm. of kitchen setup. Yeah. That yes. feels like it was plucked from my youth, that it was <laughs> kind of surreal, considering it's literally about as far away of a country as you could possibly get. There's a bird in the kitchen. I didn't realise until one of the last scenes of the film that there is a bird in the kitchen. There is a bird in a cage in the kitchen. And it took me far too long to realise that, and I'm thinking... As someone who loves birds, there is no no way that's hygienic. There is no, no way. <laughs> There's no, no way that is remotely acceptable. That bird will either poop everywhere or be dead in seconds from toxic fumes. There yes. is no way. This is good. Yeah. Another thing I I've mentioned is the fantasy trimmings. Mm, yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, it's literally. I mean, when you say fantasy, you think Lord of the Rings. You think uh, I don't know some eighties nonsense. <laughs> you don't think of the literal meaning of the word of sort of imagined fantastical things plucked out of your imagination. And when they're imagining this story, it has some of the most imaginatively shot bits in the 90s yes. that I, I've seen. That there's yes. num- numerous sequences where these men made out of clay, the little mm-hmm. figurines that they made sort of granted life and become life-size. And there's a shot, one of my favourite shots while we've been doing this podcast, is when they go in at that sandcastle, it's just yes. Oh, yes. That's so good. I don't even know how they did that, but it's wonderful. It's basically, you know, Jackson's enormous miniatures and forced perspective that he'd use for, like, Minas Tirith in a few years' time being used on a kid's sandcastle, and I love that. There's a lot of watching the fantasy sequences and this and wondering, maybe this is partially what led to Peter Jackson being given the permission to adapt this passion project, which was a three-part epic version of The Lord of the Rings. You can't imagine that the Tolkien estate granted him the rights on the back of Meet the Feebles. (laughs) You never know. (laughs) You never know. (laughs) I like what they did to that puppet. Here you go. Here's a couple of million, 100 million, (laughs) to do whatever you want. (laughs) But I think the, the... The thing about all that period detail and all that repression is that you also notice a commonality between the way this story unfolds, and it unfolds in a very dark way, and there's a flash forward to the two girls screaming and covered in blood right at the start, just so you know this will end badly. But there are also elements of it that are familiar from like more quaint traditional children's stories like what what of their sort of paths on the way to 
getting a violent revenge on someone is that they throw stones in the water when they're near a pond and splash someone's trousers. And suddenly it's like just William or something, but it it always has this really dark cloud over it. And I think it's rare to see a film that takes, and this goes back to what you were saying, Rob, about fantasy elements, it's rare to see a film that takes girls' imaginations this seriously. You know, whether Mm. it's the kind of imagination that would lead to creating your own royal dynasty with a friend or the kind of imagination that just is celebrated in those traditional children's stories. I think this is a really beautiful sort of film in how it it holds the the girlish imagination in such high esteem. Absolutely. Mm. It feels very... We've been having a lot of these sort of movies in the podcast recently, and I feel like it'd make a horribly dare-ruining double bill with <laughs> the Virgin Suicides. Yeah, I mean, that is also a 90s teen movie. Yeah, that's a, a line <laughs> of 90s teen movies that we haven't really discussed, how they were either sort of bubblegum or horrible and depressing. Yes. Well, I've forgotten who was it. What absolute sick awful wrong person sorry if this is you graham it probably is you graham who suggested <laughs> that we use larry clark's kids as one of the options for this podcast <laughs> which i think is the most by far the most upsetting option you could have what are you going to suggest gummo as a 90s teen movie hang on hang on <laughs> if gummo had a like all teen cast rather than occasionally venturing into like the world of adults i would say gummo because i, I love gummo but i also like insulting Larry Clark, it's one of my oh, main hobbies. That so, is. Yeah. Is. Um, and, and I think Graham would do that just to see me squirm because he knows <laughs> I don't like movies like Gummer. That <laughs> is. Uh, don't worry. Yeah, uh, Julian Donkey Boy technically counts as a teen movie. Oh, does it? I haven't seen that one yet. Yeah. It does. Mm. Oh, that. You think you think Heavenly Creatures is a day ruiner? Well, it's not. But if yeah, you well, put those not, two together, but, if you put those yeah. two together, like Virgin Suicides and this, yeah, your day is wrecked. Yeah, uh, Julian Donkey Boy is a film which just makes you feel bad, but it also has Werner Herzog drinking cough syrup out of a shoe, uh, which is quite <laughs> funny. <laughs> when we do an actors uncut episode on Werner Herzog, oh. and don't don't kid yourself into thinking there isn't the material because there, there is. There is material that absolutely yeah. is i think he's set for directors and god more than anything but he's already enough of an actor in the sense that he's just making these films yeah. every one of the films is just some bizarre bit that herzog has decided to do at no point during a Werner herzog acting performance do you ever think they scripted that and asked him to say the lines. It always <laughs> feels like something he just wandered in off the street and started doing and everyone was too scared to tell him to stop. Just to steer <laughs> this boat back to heavenly creatures. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, any thoughts on the movie? Anything that you haven't mentioned? Because it is a favourite for Graham, but it's a first-time watch for you, Robin. So what was your... Yes, it is. Uh, I was particularly excited to check it out because obviously it explores themes of you know mentally ill teenage girls kind of escaping into worlds of kind of fantasy and fascination and just bizarre psychosexual obsession and also it's just it's got a queer element 
it, it mm-hmm. does a very very yeah. toxic but wonderful queer element to it uh and it, i was uh basically intrigued by all of that not to mention but it's early early ish peter jackson uh and i watched it and yeah it's a neat film it's it's a film which i do properly like this it particularly does shine in those fantasy sequences as they're shown and those I, the clay people are truly something. They are a, a masterful work of just uncanny and visually disturbing. I mean, this, yeah. they can't have had a lot of money to make this movie, but that's that's a big effect. There's a large quantity of them, actually. Uh, yeah. I noticed, uh, I was wondering just how many of those costumes they built for it. Uh, there's, there's like two big shots, isn't there? There's one outside the... The scene when they make the sort of uh, the gear awakening, as it were. Yeah. And yeah. there's the other one in sort of the courtyard, like numerous shots through a courtyard. So we're talking like a considerable number of people. And you can't do a, them sorts of a... shots by tricking it by saying, yeah. you know, like you see in, you see AI now, don't you, on crowd shots, how there's some mm. sort of people in that crowd who are AI and some are real. You can't get away with tricks like that from 1994 with tricksiness and camera tricks. Of yes. course, in a sequence, it's a late, it's a late in the film sequence, but one of the abject highlights of the film, which was previously mentioned by me, uh, features this incredible, like I was astounded by the shot uh, as it zooms out uh, during the middle of this scene in which the girls explore kind of sexuality as each of these characters and mm. or saints that they've come up with, and the final shot of it is a zoom out, and it just shows this orgy of just all of the clay figures all over each other, and it's a beautiful, bizarre shot, and you can see the entire budget of the film on that shot, because (laughs) it's just, there's a lot in it. It's kind of like sort of um, 1990s Merchant Ivory suddenly had a little bit of society injected into it. (laughs) (laughs) It it distinctly is. Uh, Not to mention uh, the fact that uh, this is the scene where they say that they were introduced to the pleasures of sin, followed by a banner unfolding with the word sin on it, which blood spurts from the letters, uh, which is another absolutely insane and brilliant effect uh and it shows a bit of really early peter jackson in some of that <laughs> uh, this, this really does further my theory that peter jackson in fact died on his boat trip from like new zealand to america <laughs> chance. the, the ver- and then you just got like a random bearded guy from new zealand to do <laughs> on the rings because the, the early version of him and sort of the post-America version of him, it doesn't feel like the same guy. You see, I I kind of I kind of get watching Blood of the Rings trilogy that he did. Hmm. I kind of feel that obviously it was a passion project, and that happens when you realise that everything when it goes back to bad taste, when it goes back to brain dead, there's bits of Lord of the Rings influencing that because the lord of the rings as a book influenced every single thing which peter jackson did and if you view it from that perspective you kind of realize this is what his cinematic career was building up to and but i don't know what he did afterwards really because (laughs) that's a good question (laughs) yeah uh but uh i also love to note that there is a scene where peter jackson as always makes a sneaky little cameo yeah, uh, he does, and he plays a homeless man here in this scene, and it's quite funny. You should say I should say that because Peter Jackson 
now that I think of it, just looks like a homeless man, and I don't think that was intended to happen. <laughs> I think they just filmed him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, Graham, any final thoughts on? Uh... Oh, I, I, I just, yeah, I, I just adore watching it, and uh, I think it is worth reading up a bit on what happened to. Pauline and Juliet after this because there's at least one very surprising career shift in there. Uh, the case was also the basis for the French film Don't Deliver Us From Evil. I was is... wondering when someone would get the opportunity oh, to wow. say that. Yeah, uh, Very, very loosely adapted. Oh, yeah. uh, for what I'm, loosely. I'm aware there are numerous things in that which decidedly did not happen in real life. Yeah. There was also, uh, shortly before she died, uh, the great English novelist Angela Carter was working on a script about the Parker Hume case. I don't know if that was ever finished. I would love to think that it's available to read somewhere. I sincerely mm. hope so, because that would have probably been incredible. Yeah. <laughs> she'd, yeah. she'd have rocked that. <laughs> yes. Yeah, the only things I'd really have left to say personally is just the performances of the two girls, like Monica oh, Lewinsky, yeah. who we've not mentioned by name yet so far, is is great, but um, names, other one. Winslet. Winslet psychotic she has a look yeah. in her eyes that's like i would eat your skin if you say the wrong thing to me in Kate her eyes Winslet, it's just yeah, I, I don't think please. it's it's just as a little twinkle in her eyes it looks like cannibal would be a fine option if you say the wrong thing to me <laughs> i'm so sorry but i have to bring this up but we really are getting tired because it's not monica lewinsky Oh, I missed that. Monica I mean, Lewinsky was, you know, that, in the, that, the former. She yeah, she was the former White House intern who got harassed by Bill Clinton. There is a certain I resemblance. Slip of my tongue. <laughs> Monica, so. Melanie Linsky, Melanie Linsky. <laughs> <laughs> we get to all of our nineties mixed up here. <laughs> Melanie Linsky, my apologies. Melanie Linsky and Kate Winslet. Yes. Should all oppressed people be allowed refuge in America. Amber will take the con position. Cher will be pro. Cher, two minutes. So, okay. Like right now, for example, the Hadians need to come to America. But some people are all, what about the strain on our resources? But it's like when I had this garden party for my father's birthday, right? I said RSVP because it was a sit-down dinner. But people came that, like, did not RSVP. So I was, like, totally bugging. I had to haul ass to the kitchen, redistribute the food, squish in extra place settings. But by the end of the day, it was like, the more, the merrier. And so, if the government could just get to the kitchen, rearrange some things, we could certainly party with the Hadians. And in conclusion, may I please remind you that it does not say RSVP on the Statue of Liberty. Thank you very much. Uh, Amber, uh, reply. Mr. Hall, how can I answer that? The topic is Haiti, and she's talking about some little party. Hello, it was his 50th birthday. Whatever. If she doesn't do the assignment, I can't do mine. So, moving on to the second movie, which is an absolute 180 of a tone change. <laughs> uh, 1995's Clueless by Amy oh. Heckling. Mm. So, uh, Graham, what's Clueless? 
Clipless is uh, something that was present in a lot of 90s teen movies where they would retell classic stories and classic literature in a teen movie format. And in this case, it's uh, Emma by Jane Austen. Uh, and it follows the adventures of Cher Horowitz, a very shallow, very rich Beverly Hills Valley girl who sees herself as the sort of social facilitator of her high school. If you're a nerd, she'll make you popular. If you're dateless, she'll make you hot, and so on. And eventually, as she goes through her life, she notices that all of the people that she's initiated into this new world of high school popularity are more popular than her. And once that's happened, what does she have left? Well, it turns out she has Paul Rudd, who <laughs> looks exactly the goddamn same in this as he does in movies he is making right now. It's it's really quite noticeable. I'm just like, I know how old Paul Rudd was in this film. <laughs> he does look like he is that age. He looks that age now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> What's happening? <laughs> yeah. For me, this is a weird one. Because mm. I actually quite enjoyed watching this now. When yeah. I watch, yeah. When I watched it as a kid, uh, sort of teenage years, I thought, don't like that. It's a girl's movie. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You know how you are when you're like 16 or 17. Yeah, you don't really yeah. have the sort of nuance of faculties to sort of process a movie like this. But it's <laughs> it's very shrewdly satirical, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It's full of absolutely killer lines. I've forgotten how great the voiceover is when you first see this awful kind of mock classical McMansion that Cher's family live in. She says, isn't my house so old? Some of these columns date back to 1972. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, little known fact, I absolutely adore Clueless. It's, yes. it's, a, it's a movie I... I genuinely really really love hilariously the previous time i watched it was also whilst doing research for something uh oh. in an october uh in which i sandwiched it between uh my first viewings of uh calling back to the previous podcast i was on for this uh frankenstein and bride of frankenstein uh <laughs> you never know you never know <laughs> yeah. but yeah it's a it's an absolutely wonderful film it's it's got some really biting sharp stuff in there but it's also just a movie where for the notoriously cynical 90s it's actually a really sweet natured and good-hearted film where primarily it's just very kind and forgiving and accepts change mm. yeah i think that's one of the things that amy heckling actually really wanted to do mm. um, i can't remember what the previous property she did for the 90s was i think it was um 90s might have been 80s uh, Ridgemont High, I think she yeah, did. Yeah, uh, 82. High. Yeah, yeah. And so she wanted to do something in this one, which is just a happy and positive sort of worldview. Because it's, it's like little bits that sort of, just on that little bits where it sort of has this sort of, it alludes to the sense of the, the bubble that this movie takes place in. Mm. This is a very funny scene where they're out driving and they go out <laughs> on the motorway and it's like, the and exited this little bubble that Clueless exists in, and that's the real yeah. world, and the real world terrifies them. It's, yes. it's absolutely wonderful uh, to think that basically they almost accidentally end up in a Final Destination film. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, but it's unreasonably funny. <laughs> what was with that truck? <laughs> probably had it, lots of logs on the back as well. It probably yeah. did have lots of logs on the back. <laughs> It's they so got out lucky. 
It's so interesting that you bring up fast times at Richmond High too, because that's one of like about two or three Yates teen movies that I actually like. <laughs> and I think it, Fast Times at Richmond High just feels to me like the last of the 70s teen movies. You know, it feels more akin to something like American Graffiti than it does Pretty in Pink. And I think part of what Clueless does that I didn't appreciate as a kid, but I, I get now that I've seen more films, is that it does problematise that kind of idea of the perfect John Hughes kind of Beverly Hills 90210 teen media world, where here the makeovers, which in in an, in older teen movies like the apotheosis right it's where you become the person that you could be but the yeah. makeovers make everyone into a false self here and it it's sort of portrayed as something almost i mean we'll go on to this as an influence but almost a sort of body snatchers situation where shares suddenly going around realizing that all of the sort of frumpy dorks that she extended a hand of charity to have now usurped her position. It's now that you mention that, uh, although we will get on to the faculty, mm. thematically it pairs really interestingly with that, yeah. what that's trying to do, uh, because it does have similar subversions of kind of this idea of kind of who people are and who people should be by yeah. conventional standards. Uh, I mean, considering the faculty outright calls for the death of monoculture, uh, I, <laughs> uh, and it, it's a it's a little bit more obviously radical, uh, hmm. but at the same time, in its quiet way, it's. I mean, I've got to say, what Clueless does, I think it's. I think it's clever. I yeah. I do love it. I think it's a wonderful, wonderful film, and I could say that again and again, and I will say it again and again because it's been a long day. It, it, it sort of legacy is a weird one because Graham mentioned there the sort of the makeover movies like mm, She's yeah. All That or Ten Things I Hate About You. Or, I know mm. Ten Things I Hate About You is beloved, but it's still it, it's it's one of those movies. The sort of the yeah. girly girly rom com with no sort of substance to them. They're all sort of disposable fluff. Mm. That's the reputation. And Clueless gets bounded up in that sort of company. But I think I haven't seen it, but I know it by reputation. But Clueless feels like it's a bit more from the the Barbie stock, which was out this year. Yeah, yeah. But it's it's using those tropes. It's using those standards to actually point at them rather than sort of celebrate them. I mean, tonally, it's quite similar to Barbie, yeah. as a matter of fact. I, it's undoubtedly an influence upon uh, what Greta Gerwig was doing with Barbie uh, this year. Uh, I see, in fact, now that I realise it as we speak, uh, it has a slightly similar plot progression. Uh, <laughs> Tragically, Paul Rudd has no musical numbers in he doesn't. Uh, Clueless, but that's the only thing that he could learn I'm just Paul... <laughs> <laughs> the one thing that is disappointing in this sort of half of the 90s episodes is in the horror half of the 90s, the sort of post-slasher ones, mm. there was always that scene at a high school dance where it was like a really famous band. <laughs> yeah. like, why, why, like, Idle Hands had like a high school dance and they had the offspring. It's like, 
wow, the budget of this school is through the roof. <laughs> See, I, I like... I like who they got in for <laughs> the Clueless. I think it really, really works. Uh, I think this, the soundtrack to this film, and you, you know, I've said over and over again on this podcast that nostalgia as a cultural force really troubles me. I think it's regressive. I think it keeps culture stuck. So I, I'm saying this so you understand that it means something that when I saw the musical montages in Clueless, I was almost in tears at the fact that it is no longer the 90s. There's like one bit where I wrote in my in my notes, is there any band who encapsulates the sort of sunny, idealistic part of the 90s better than the Lightning Seeds? And then the next song was by Supergrass, and I thought, oh yeah, they yeah. do it, actually. Yeah. In, in a previous episode you were on, Graham, you had sort of a revelation with Marie Antoinette the first time you watched it. You yes. didn't get it. And I think for me, this has been an, a similar experience. Oh, excellent, because I, I loved having that sort of penny drop moment about Marie Antoinette. That was great for me. I think in both cases, I was, personally, I was just too young for the material. I mean, this is such a contradictory movie, mm. because it's a movie about teenagers, about the teenage experience, but it's told in a way which is too clever for the sort of typical subject, sub, typical audience of this sort of movie to get. Because the typical audience of this movie mm. is going to the mall and doing all the sort of the things it's depicted. It's not really the audience for satire. Now, as someone, I know you were as well, Rob, but speaking personally as someone who was a teenager in the 90s, one interesting thing that I remember about the teen movies of this era is that they were often talked about in terms of, oh, you don't have to be a teenager to watch it, in the same way that 10 years later when Pixar were on their golden streak, the talk was, you don't have to be a kid to watch it. Mm. And I think that's part of the cultural shift that um, this movie, certainly more than any of the others we're doing, represents, where in the 60s and 70s, teen movies were aimed at teenagers. Adults found teenagers baffling and frightening you know back then they didn't understand their values and the baby boom meant that there was a big enough cohort of teenagers that you didn't have to appeal to another audience but by the 90s this definitely shifted where clueless was talked about in this way where people would say oh yeah it's got all of the sort of pop culture jokes for the mall crowd but you know it's also it's based on austin it's genuinely satirical it's got some really sort of sharp gags about the adults and the world they live in all of the adults are played by insanely classy actors like dan hadaya and wallace sean which is great and it, that seems to be a cultural shift that is now slightly reversing. I think by the time this podcast is out, we will have had the UK release of Emma Seligman's Bottoms, which feels like the first teen movie in a while, which is basically saying, look, quite a lot of adults aren't going to understand what the fuck this is about. But if you're in the age group, this is for you. And it's interesting. And how I that's... certainly am. <laughs> I have, it is very for me. I hope I get to see and have a means of seeing that uh, because it's <laughs> seemingly coming directly to Amazon and womp womp. That is bizarre, look. I don't know the name of the actor, but she's also in um, Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. And uh, Rachel Sennett. Rachel Sennett, yeah. yeah. She seem, that seems to be sort of the raison d'etre of her career, really. Sort of these weird little nervous tape yes. movies. Oh, yeah. Well, and she's been making a killing to... out of it. 
you do have to take tranquilizers after you watch Shiver Baby, but I love that movie <laughs> anyway. Yeah. But uh, anything, anything else about Clueless? To end on a surprisingly serious and probably mood-killing note, I do wonder, after having seen Clueless the first time around, and I still think of this, if part of why Clueless resonates with me, even in the bits which people would find superficial, is because part of the appeal of these 90s teen movies to me personally, uh, particularly these female-centric ones, perhaps it's part of me trying to chase a teenage girlhood I never had, even if it's hmm. only a fantasy idea. And that's probably a really deep note to end on, but at the same time, think it's also a wonderful film. There's you bring a what you're, you're bringing your personal experience to a yeah. movie, of course. It's yeah. true. But there's a certain truth to it. I do have this personal theory that most people resent the decade they were born in, are fond of the decade that they were like young, that they were teenagers in, in a nostalgic, but are fascinated by the decade they missed. Yeah, I was born just a few years late to claim that I was alive in the 70s, and I... I am fascinated by the 70s because it feels like the skeleton key to everything that happened afterwards. But I also think maybe that's a universal thing. You know, maybe the babies that are being born today are going to grow up and think, I wish I'd been around for the 2010s. There's just something about that time you missed out on. I don't know. The amount of things which I could say now, the, the amount of very various joke, very jokes I could say now about children born in 2030, and I could make some horrendous pop cultural reference of something which makes no sense to me, and I'm dreading saying any of it. I don't want to say the phrase of some kids growing up that's just like, oh, I wish I could have experienced Skibbity Toilet in its prime. <laughs> <I'm>... <laughs> <laughs> Those were the good old days. Oh, I wish I'd turn. wish I'd been around for real music like Megan Trainer. I wish we'd been around for. for, for I, you know what? I, I wish I'd been there for the, for the premiere of Go To with, uh, with John Travolta. Those <laughs> were the days. Those were the days. I wish I'd been there for Movie Pass. Hey, I wish I'd been at the premiere for Gotti with John Travolta. <laughs> I I do I do wish that I think he he would have probably set his Scientology laser sights on me and obliterated me within <laughs> seconds, took me out from a crowd. <laughs> you well, can't uh, laugh once, there. As a man who is made entirely out of park, I wouldn't take it <laughs> too seriously. I guess everybody feels connected to themselves. Yeah, and nine. I have the benefit of being connected to myself and my sister, but I know that connection may or may not last beyond this existence. We never want to lose that connection, Mary. Maybe we'll die together and face whatever's to come together. Maybe not. But should anything ever happen to one of us before the other, we want to lose that connection. We want you to take off our left arms and exchange them with one another. That shouldn't be a problem. We also want you to strengthen our connection with ourselves. It's a bit more complicated than it appendage exchange and somewhat difficult to put into that, but we feel that image best describes the reflection we 
desire. Of course, the amount you need for compensation is not an issue. How's Friday? Just jumping into the conversation here with myself, Graham and Robin to say what's coming up around the edges of uh, this podcast. Um, but first, do check out Pop Screen Graham's podcast. Um, great stuff. It's part of our Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash the geek show. Or if you go to thegeekshow.co.uk, there'll be a tab there that says Patreon. Or if you go to my LinkedIn, not a LinkedIn, Linktree. I would never direct you to my LinkedIn. That'd be an awful decision. But if you go to my Linktree, which is Uncut Robcast, you'll find uh, a link for Patreon there too. Um, the £3 tier, you get a extra episode of Pop Screen, which I believe is some uh, Taylor Swift thing. But being as far away from a Swifty as I think it is possible to get, I don't know what any of that means. So if that means something to you, £3 tier, um, you will get Graham's bonus podcast. Only £2, you will get... Um, the latest episode of the VHS series, which at time of going to press, is VHS 2. But also you'll get the entire archive going both backwards and forwards. So backwards it is um, Cube and Wreck. We've not announced what's going to be coming up on the next series, because that's going into next year. And also, um, but also on the £1 tier there is uh, Last Night. Um, which is the monthly thing we do where we talk about the stuff that we've been watching, which was a bit of a Halloween-themed one um, this past week or so, ten days ago, I should say. Um, but yeah, that's all over on Patreon. If you want to keep up with me on social media, that's Uncut Robcast across all other things. And I'm sorry to report, since I did this bit in the last podcast, I've not, I've not got any better at posting. I'll be honest. Um, Social media is in a funny place right now. Let's just say that. I'll announce stuff for the podcast, but beyond that, yeah. Um. So yeah, I'll I'll jump into now the section where we talk about what's coming up in the upcoming episode, or I should say the next episode, because we are cycling back around to directors, and we'll jump to that right now. Yeah, I think that sort of leads us to the middle part of the show where we pick who is coming up on a upcoming episode. And not doing it random anymore because we want to get everybody on the show and random basically isolates people and makes it think it gives the impression that I've forgotten about them. And I hate that. That, that that's, that's not me. So I'm picking it with purpose. And the next director, or should I say directors, is uh, the Soska sisters. So what's your feeling? I know there's some controversy and I know the bros of horror hate them. So let's just sort of push that to one side. And their movies, just purely on their movies, what do you think of them in that level? Um, so, I absolutely love American Mary. Hmm. It's a film that I discovered around the time that it came out, I think, when I didn't really have many friends who were particularly into horror, didn't have the sort of community and friends that I have now where, you know, every man and his dog has heard of every underground horror film ever made. Um, so for me, it was one of those films that I found and it became like a bit of a an obsession because I was like, wow, there's this like film. I've never seen a film like this. I probably at that point had never seen, well, knowingly seen a female directed horror film um, or anything that was that sort of 
that by implying where it was a really strong, powerful woman doing nasty things. Um, obviously, I won't spoil it because you'll probably hear it on the episode. But yeah, I think I think they've got a lot going for them. Um, controversy aside, like I think they're quite cool. Um, their style is quite different to a lot of other things that I've seen. Um, yeah, highly highly recommend American Mary. Um, hmm. I mean, they're quite brave for doing a remake of. Is it a remake or is it sort of a fresh? But they did Rabbit which historically is a David Cronenberg movie, and to do that, it's, it's a brave decision, really. Yeah, I didn't I didn't see that, um, so I can't comment, but like I, know, but I haven't seen it either, brave. but just, just the fact that they did it, I think, shows yeah. um, a brave sort of side to them. And also, yeah. the, 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 I hate to say it because I'm a man and I shouldn't talk like this, but mm-hmm. they are feminist icons. Yeah, I I love how they're, there's so many people on social media who fight them at every stage, and they're just how they're sort of um, how do I word this? They just stand up to say how much that work they've got to do to make a movie when a man can just make it, and to have that sort of clarity in social media when there's a lot of hotheads. I think they have a creative value, regardless of what I'll, they might or might not have said. You know, on that level, they are great. Yeah, and that's it, isn't it? And I'm sure, you know, there's there's plenty to be said about separating the art from the artist and things like that. Mm. Ultimately, I think it's always good to have more female voices in horror um, and to tell more female-based stories. I like any film where you've got a sort of imperfect woman doing questionable things rather than just a typical revenge film or a typical final girl. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, representation isn't everybody being perfect. It's allowing mm-hmm. people to be all sorts of different shades. Yeah, I think if you ask any female horror fan what she would like to see more of, the answer would probably always be female villains that are female villains just for the sake of being it, not mm. just because a man did something to them, not just because they're fighting for something. You know, we get plenty of films about men that are just horrible for the sake of being horrible um, and yeah. we would definitely like to see I don't recognize the surface tissue at all Casey, I don't want to blow smoke up your butt here but I think you found a new species yeah right, hey it could happen new species are discovered every day be so cynical could it be nephostimulator? nah, but they escaped detection until the mid 20th century you just know everything I'm a contradiction Check the mesodermic follicles on its underbelly. What does that mean? It means we got to call the university, let them take a look. Maybe even get in on some of that federal grant money. Our secret. All right. Hey, Stokely, maybe it's from your plan. Blow me apart. Whoa, did you see that? What is he doing? So you think it's amphibian? Well, water resuscitated it. Yeah, but couldn't this kill it? Yeah, you don't want to drown it. One way to find out. Oh, man. It's all right. It's okay. What are you doing? Just gonna check his prostate. 
Actually, the surface texture changed, so I want to feel it. Okay, so that leads us to the final uh, film of this weird uh, triple bill. <laughs> 1998's uh, The Faculty, starring Robert Rodriguez. And as we pit no, Robert Rodriguez. Yeah, this is how b- b- Burnt My Brain is directed by, directed by. Um, this is a key movie for me. Hmm? That's the one job he doesn't do, famously. He does <laughs> everything thing he else doesn't on do. the film. <laughs> Yeah, give him a chance, though. He'd probably appear somewhere in his photography. Yeah, probably. But yeah, this is the movie which, I, when I turned 15, it was the first movie I tried to sneak into. So this has a deep sort of personal <laughs> um, significance for me. This is a real formative experience at faculty. But essentially what it is, it's every so often, every 10, 15 years, there's an adaptation or a variation of the Invasion of the Body Snatchers formula. Mm-hmm. And this was the version of the late 90s, which is uh, in a high school. But it's got a great cast. It's like got Josh Hartner. It's got like an eight-year-old Elliot, Elijah Wood, Claire mm. Duvall, Jordana Indeed, Brewster, Usher, Salma Hayek, Robert Patrick, and all loads of people. I, loads I forgot people. that Usher was in this movie. I didn't realise that this qualified for pop screen as well. <laughs> it's true. It's, it's so funny that Robert Patrick's in it because I hadn't realised until the second viewing uh, that there are teachers named Furlong and Connor. Yes. Uh, <laughs> the film is not being subtle about it. Yeah. <laughs> it wants you to know, yeah, we've got Robert Patrick. What about it? Mm. <laughs> it was peak era as well, yeah. But... um. Graham, what are your thoughts on this one? I remembered seeing this, like most of this, on late night television and being surprisingly enthused by it. And I think that's mostly held up, which isn't the same thing as saying that I think it's, you know, a flawless film. I think there are some things about it that have held up very well. I think there are some things about it that don't work, but the things that don't work at least have the decency to be fucking insane, which is actually very enjoyable. Like, the decision to make the heartthrob teen hero a drug dealer and to have like his entire method of testing whether someone is human or alien is... Oh, like take my drugs. Oh, that's it... phenomenal. I <laughs> I adore that. That's my... such a clever reference to the thing. Yeah, but best of all is when it's the effects it has on each person so the room kind of becomes more and more intense. Uh, so yeah. everybody's kind of out of their minds whilst they're trying to figure out how to do these tasks. Which it, leads yeah. Elijah Wood tweaking off his ass, quote, let him, <laughs> just let him tweak, man. Uh, but it, just watching him laughing his ass off like he's just been asked if he'll ever wear wigs. And it's just, <laughs> <laughs> it's just an unbelievably insane moment. This is yes. just before um, sort of ties all the movies together quite nicely because this is just before Lord of the Rings. Yeah, this would have been. Oh, yeah, yeah. But that's like that scene is a reference to the famous one in the thing where they're all tied to it. 
a chair and it's a blood test scene. <laughs> a couch specifically. Yeah. yeah. Um but yeah, it's it is that it's a high school's taken over and everybody becomes placid and agreeable and it, uh, the first scene everybody it's full of life, it's full of arguments, it's full of just teen life. Sort of an exaggerated version, but it's it's there. And that's yeah. the, the message on this. It's just conformity is king and nobody should stand out because in conformity everybody is happy. And so it's yeah. kind of uh, that's the stance it takes. It's a great movie. Uh, as a point, I want to bring up. I have actually seen it before. Uh, doing this for this podcast, which led to one of the most unusual and disconcerting viewing experiences I've had. So the first time I watched it was as a, a completely bizarre kind of tonal whiplash double bill with the mist. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, <laughs> anyway, first time I watched it, absolutely a adored this film. Mm. And the second time round I was watching it and thinking, this is great, but why don't I love it the same? It felt like being shot, to be honest. However, it's a great film. It's nonetheless a great film, but there's a detail I hadn't picked up on the first time around, which is there's something quite unpleasant about the way that the aliens take over, which is important for a reason which I'm about to bring up and Mm. may shock you. So there's an obvious thematic thing going on, perhaps watching with a modern lens, that there's a definite sexual harassment element to yes. the way that the aliens attack Absolutely. people. And yeah. the way that that personifies itself, particularly in a teacher towards a student during mm. halfway through the film. And I'm wondering, it's just like, perhaps in a way this is commenting on the fact that institutional cover-ups and ignorance of abuse enables it to continue and spread and behaviour like this. Who produced the film Harvey and Bob Weinstein? Oh, yes. <laughs> I think they're yeah. just signed off on anything, really. It's yeah. true, which is also why they produced Scream Free, uh, <laughs> which features a Sex Pest studio producer. I think <laughs> they're aware of that, though, because there is a scene at the beginning um, with the headmaster and Robert Patrick, which is alluding to the fact that, you know, Indeed. Yeah. harassment lines are being passed here. Be yeah. Yeah. It Patrick. has that element that I really enjoy in a movie like Evil Dead 2, where it's its vision of the ultimate evil, the ultimate inhuman, monstrous evil is someone who's just a dick. You know, yeah. The Deadites <laughs> in Evil Dead 2 are just pricks to people for no <laughs> they reason. They punch you. They punch yeah. you. The Deadites aren't right unless they punch the shit out of you. That was one of my few, my few issues with Evil Dead Rise, uh, was that the Deadites don't punch people. <laughs> <laughs> what I like about this, though, it's kind of um, genre fluid. Mm, yes. It is two things simultaneous well three things simultaneously it's a teen movie in a high school it's an invasion of the body snatchers movie and it is my favorite subgenre from the 1990s it is the sort of creature feature dumb yeah. shit creature feature from the 90s and there's yes. so 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 many of them and i love them all even though i know they're not very good the thing is <laughs> i know that uh obviously not to overlap too much with the 90s slashes podcast but not a lot of appreciation is given to the fact that there are a bunch of really weird kind of sometimes dumb but often strangely high concept and character driven kind of teen horror movies which weren't slashes that just came out of the 90s i'm talking stuff like 
obviously the craft and mm. we've got a disturbing behavior which i was going to watch as research for this podcast and never got round to uh which is bizarrely a remake of the film dead kids from 1981 <laughs> uh, <laughs> which is an insane film okay uh, but yeah uh if you have not seen that there is a dance sequence in Batman and Robin, Batman and Robin costumes from the Batman 60s TV show. (laughs) Someone with a knife with a Tor Johnson mask who pees blood in a gas station. (laughs) It's a normal film. Tangerine Dream did the soundtrack. (laughs) (laughs) It's the most normal Australian film you will ever see. (laughs) Uh, But but back to this, it's, it's noticeable how a lot of these have slipped under the radar. Even the faculty has, essentially. Uh, but uh, even though it's not a slasher film, I was surprised. I hadn't remembered just how strangely gory the faculty yeah. is. For being a teen movie, there is there's a lot of bloodshed. There's a lot of melting faces and severed fingers and stuff. Particularly the severed fingers which crawl on the floor. Ooh, that's great. something. Am I remembering this right? Or are they John Stewart severed fingers, which makes it even more retrospectively bizarre? I mean, the best moment, of course, is a moment alluded to earlier where a fed up, where John Stewart, as a fed up teacher, says, Someone just shove a pen in my eye. And later (laughs) on, they shove a pen into his eyeball and milky fluid leaks out the end. It's horrible. It's, It's wonderful. And I mean, a studio is, movie for like, it's mass a audiences. It's a studio movie for mass audiences and features some, like, I know there's a, there's a detail about the film which I, I noticed, which is, yeah, all of these people, uh, all, of, all of the teachers come back, apart from the old lady who just decomposed but wasn't great. Um, <laughs> they shove, shove her in a cupboard. <laughs> yeah, they shove her in a cupboard. Just dead, dead naked old lady who just like felt a bit, which is really upsetting. Yeah, uh, but by but it's just like how did some of them come back though? Like because mm. in the credits, in the sitcom style ending credits, we see an unused shot uh, of one of the teachers with his bandaged back on fingers and eye patch over his face, and another teacher is shown after her head was detached and kind of reattached itself wearing a scarf to hide kind Famke of Janssen. Yes, Famke Janssen yeah. indeed. Must have been uh, a very early role for her. Who looks about like three weeks older than some of the students here, doesn't she? <laughs> it's true. Uh, but my my but the thing is I'm wondering yeah, they melt one of the teachers. <laughs> one of the teachers melts into goop. How did, how yeah. did she come back? But this feels this feels like the end point of, I guess, something that's been bubbling throughout a lot of nineties media. In that this is nineteen ninety eight. One year later, it'll be the Columbine High School massacre. There is yeah. a mass panic about violent media aimed at children uh, as a result of not wanting to talk about guns, and this feels like. If this feels like a different world now, watching it now, it's because it is. This is a film where your hero can be a high school drug dealer who points a gun at his teachers and everyone's like, (laughs) yeah, it's it's a popcorn movie. What are you on about? I hadn't really thought about that. (laughs) It's sort of like a pre-post-code cut-off, isn't it? 
yeah, so yeah, very much so. so. One of the more unusual examples, just randomly segueing here, is Claire Duval in it, who yeah. is has a look in it which I, to quote a message I sent to my girlfriend, my life ruined forever was what I messaged <laughs> because, <laughs> yo, I'm. I I'm yeah, <laughs> but but the sad but the saddest point and one issue I have with it is I get what it's doing. It's often stated that she is a lesbian. She has a reputation mm. for it. Turns out she's not, and she's just yeah. created this reputation to play on people's stigma uh, and kind of basically get people not to talk to her. Mm. Uh, Using it as sort of a keeping people at arm's length tool, which is one of the things that are like 1990s culture is kind of awkward. Like there's a use of the R word, which is a little horrible. (laughs) But there is also in Clueless, but weirdly, it's incredibly funny when she says it. (laughs) Uh, I think it's just intent, any use of any word, it's the intent and I think they get away with it, really. I think Other movies are absolutely vile. In in the faculty, I was watching and thinking, yeah, but why isn't she a lesbian? That's but why the isn't she? That and is the one me... piece of grit in it for me, in that it has this anti-conformist message, but Claire Duval, the gayest thing on God's green earth, <laughs> has to get together with this dude at the end. I mean, she herself shit. came out surprisingly late. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, but, that whole, that whole yeah. postscript bit at the end, that last scene, I think it'd be much better served if yeah. it just sort of ended with Elijah Wood sort of jumping through the bleachers and sort of yeah. cutting to black as he gives a great final line there. Yeah, I mean, my one of my uh, I, one of my favourite 90s teen movies, which connects to Clea Duvall, and I kind of wanted to bring up at some point, and I don't know how I'll get into that, is that, of course, she did get to play a lesbian in But I'm a Cheerleader, which is a, a brilliant, the most wholesome movie about conversion therapy you will ever see. Yes. <laughs> but according to her, she genuinely did not know she was a lesbian at that point, and you're watching this and you're thinking, that's interesting, because <laughs> I know you are watching it. <laughs> I mean, I mean, apparently Natasha Leone is is straight, yeah. <laughs> allegedly, despite she's, all of the films she's been in. She's allegedly straight, and yet every single anecdote I've ever heard her tell is about accidentally wandering into a lesbian orgy. And you think, well, if it happens once, Natasha, that's an accident. But when it happens all the time, to quote her on the on the set of But I'm a Cheerleader, this is a movie about how being gay is better, which it is. Natasha, <laughs> what are you not telling us? <laughs> the use final word, though, I mean, for me, yeah, uh, the faculty will always be an important part of my sort of pathway into movies. Mm. It's like movies like this and uh, the Grim- uh, Gremlins and this and that that so, helped me yeah. actually discover horror movies. So you could you could probably pick this to pieces quite easily. Oh, I'm if not you, going to trust if, me. <laughs> I won't. If you were mean spirited enough, I think you could pick this to pieces if you really wanted to. But it, it's just so meaningful for me that you yeah. know it, it'll, it'll always be a big one for me. Yeah, but you can pick it up to pieces quite easily. I mean, the yeah, CG is crap. You can. I don't, I, 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 the CG, yeah. sure, the CG hasn't aged 
great, but it's fun. Yeah, it's yeah. fine. So fun. It's much worse. It's much worse. So, so, some of it's actually really, really good in some bits. Uh, <laughs> although, admittedly, partially because Practical Monster at the end is so insanely good. Oh, it's <laughs> yes. incredible. It's like the Tremors monster. It's like it's also... so iconic. I think that's what justifies it, is that it is at that sort of level. It is at that point in like Hollywood history where a mid-budget studio movie like this still isn't able to afford going full CGI with everything all of the time. So you have the CGI used to augment these great practical effects, which you know, I'm fine with that. It looks great. Hmm. Um, so just talking, like finishing up talking about sort of a two-pronged thing, mm. can teen movies ever come back? And was this the last great era for the teen movie in the 1990s? Oh, interesting. Oh, sorry to go back for a second, but I have to mention one person we didn't mention in the faculty, uh, okay. and we need to mention Piper Laurie is in. Yeah, the late Piper Laurie, yeah. And the same with uh, Clueless, Brittany Murphy. Indeed, yeah. 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 Which is sad seeing her. It's some brilliant people, but I thought we should acknowledge them at the we very should. least. In, in, yeah, in, the, in this way and this way only, Heavenly Creatures is the least depressing movie <laughs> ever <laughs> set. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, we can return to the 1990s, is it the last great teen movie? And can we ever have this style of movie back again? Do you think mm. they're rumblings? I certainly hope so. I, I think. Partially, we won't. A lot of people won't recognize if there is a new wave of great teen movies until it's over. But there's, well, there's maybe. bits and yeah. pieces. I mean, things like um, oh, I can't remember the name of it now. The Scottish musical with zombies, brain, uh, and, 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 and the apocalypse. apocalypse. That's which a great, was delightful, a, a great mm. modern example. And you probably pick little bits like that, but nothing concentrated enough to be a wave. Seeing things which are coming out, like particularly Bottoms coming out, could signal a little something. But I feel yeah. like until the people who are teens now grow older, yeah, perhaps if there is a wave of really clever stuff, perhaps we will not recognise it until it's over. I think you have to look upon any sort of wave of teen movies as a sign of generational change and I think they happen best when the adult world does not necessarily understand what being a teenager means that's why so many great teen movies come out during the hippie era that's why so many great teen movies came out during the 90s when you know I, it's less well remembered because there isn't a scene to hang it off but I remember a lot of adults being really perplexed at why teens seemed so apathetic and nihilistic compared to how they compared to apparently they were all like running to be an mp when they were a kid um but <laughs> yeah <laughs> rose tinted there i think but uh I, so i think there's room for it to happen my dream is that hollywood looks at this summer's box office results and realizes that every franchise they had has just been outgrossed by a comedy about a doll and a biopic of a man who made the first atom bomb and think, well, we clearly don't know what's going on here. Why don't we at least loose the reins over to some people who do? And when that happens, and I think it should happen, you'll get amazing team movies again. I certainly hope so. Because I, I don't think um, it's the desire to have them. I don't think that's gone. Mm. I think it's one of these things which has caused like the strikes that have been happening in America. It's just the studio dictating what 
they think people want rather than yeah. reactions to what people want. Because there's great stuff in one that I'll always talk about is uh, Spontaneous, which is another great modern I've one. I've heard that's wonderful. It's I have not seen it yet. fantastic movie. So there is the little ones that sort of bubble around. It's just... We have our own heavenly creatures now with We're All Going to the World's Fair. Yes. <laughs> which is a, uh, another probably miserable, definitely teen movie. Hmm. <laughs> heavenly it's, it's... creatures for people who've spent far too much time on something awful as a kid. But, yeah. uh, it's... Me, uh, for me, it is my heavenly creatures. For people who spent far too long watching top ten goblins caught on tape for real on YouTube, <laughs> 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 fifteen <Yeah>. years old. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's that thing, isn't it? Really about the the state of the film industry. It's mm. there's low budget, low budget, and it is doing well. I think mm. as far as sort of the returns that these movies are getting, the blockbuster space is capitulating and falling to pieces by the day. Yeah. Once upon a time, there was a middle gap between them two, and that's that middle gap where the teen movie once reigned supreme, really. Well, the good and thing is about teen turn. movies is that they generally don't need much money to make. Like, generally, you need a cast full of people who are attractive but no one has ever heard of, and you need the budget to get about 10 or 15 songs that are big on the radio right now, and you can yeah. turn a tidy profit with that. The only question, and I think it can only be answered by a fear of Hollywood treading into the values of a generation that they do not understand is why is no one doing that? Mm. They will use sort of dismissive things like, but they're always on the phone, they're always on the TikTok. I mean, always on them instant grams. <laughs> and that's what I mean, Josh Hartnett's character in The Faculty was distributing, of course. <laughs> yeah, not, not, he was. Not, yeah, he not, was. To, not to get political, but it's like kids haven't changed. It's just they don't no, have anything to no. do. So whether it's like going out and being an absolute menace. Yeah, or spending time on the phone. It's because there's nothing else to do. And if there's movies made for this demographic at the cinema, not just sort of like the vague sense of like teenagers go to see like blockbusters because there's nothing else really. You mm. go and see 15 rated horror movies because there's nothing else. Yeah, but if there was actually movies made for them, I think they'd go to see it in the droves, honestly, because they oh, want yeah. to be entertained as much as anybody else does, and sort of dismiss them as oh they want to be Ike's or watch YouTube or whatever. It's just really torn deaf. I mean, you, you wonder see, why Barbie yeah. Hovermass is coming in? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I think that about cover it, really. I imagine we'll come back to the 90s again, because I do want to do sort of... I think we have to address the elephant in the room, that the idea that 90s horror is awful. I think an episode <laughs> needs to be done. Like, like, okay. Besides the teen stuff, I think yeah. that is an episode that needs to address that. But that will come down the line, whenever that might be. Um, but yeah, I think that about cover it for the 1990s and the first uh, genres on Cutmon. Um, coming up next, keeping it sort of horror themed like it has been quite regularly recently, um, by looking at the Suska sisters. So that'll be returning back to the director's uncut loop. We'll get the antiseptics ready. <laughs> yeah. Um, we're doing American Mary and Rabid. I maybe like American Mary a bit. Maybe a lot. <laughs> yeah. I think usually in these episodes I say, what do you want to do? And they all went instantly, American Mary. Okay. <laughs> Can't argue with that. 
Yeah. So, um, that wraps us for this episode of the Uncut Network. Hey, Graham, where can we find you and the stuff that you do online? Well, I'm currently uh, most employed on Geek Show's Pop Screen podcast, uh, where every fortnight we cover a different movie either starring about or by a pop star. I write for Byline Times uh, and the Geek Show. If you subscribe to the Geek Show's Patreon, you can read my uh, project where I go through all of the Mythark episodes of the X-Files, trying to work out if it makes any sense. Um, where else? Where else? I'll uh, On Letterboxd, just search for Graham Williamson. And I think maybe by the time this is out, I either will have had or will be about to release uh, a music video for the band Amateur Ornithologist and their track, If It Looks Like Magic, which should be coming out there soon enough. Um, I think this will be mid-November. Maybe forthcoming then, so keep an eye out for that. Okay. And Robin? Uh, well, you can currently somehow still find me on the ship with absolutely dead shredded sails and no wind about it, but it's Twitter. I have currently eaten several of the crewmates, blood drips down my chin, at least I remain. I may no longer be human, but I remain. <laughs> and otherwise, I am on Letterboxd. I have already, uh, by the time of this, but probably by at least a month, uh, released my own bizarre teen movie of sorts if the teens in question are depressed and stand about making very silly fart noises in front of museum exhibits that they've got permission to film in front of uh, which is uh, Katie and Joan go to the museum and otherwise you may have already had the chance to see by that point if all works out or maybe it's coming soon uh, my slightly more serious actually a lot more serious uh, kind of tonal whiplash that is the estrogen gospel which I hope people will enjoy and uh, the links to all that, if it's present and available online, I will put in the description below. Um, but yes, until next time with the Soska sisters, this has been the Uncut Network. Bye.